I don't mean to slap all the medicines down, especially for those people who have found medicine that actually works. But I do say that in my world, it's not just the medicines that don't work. It's the diagnoses that don't work. In other words, maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Even if you're miserable, even if you're in pain, even if you're afraid, even if you're anxious, even if you're depressed, even if you're aimless, even if you have insomnia, even if you have a tough time in social settings, like all those things are part of what it is to be human. In this crazy world, feeling uncomfortable should be embraced. It's no sign of mental health to be sane in an insane world. And I don't have it that the laboratory medicines that were created are designed to do anything more than perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to treat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations. Today, we have Dr. Fred Moss in the house. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Susan. It's a deep pleasure to be here with you. A true honor. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for creating this time to connect and share your wisdom with us today. Just to sure. give context to our listeners, I um, would like to share a little bit of your bio, and then we can... Take it from there. Okay. Um, Dr. Fred Moss is a mental health advocate, psychiatrist, serving in many capacities. Keynote speaker, psychiatry expert witness, podcast podcaster, mental health coach, and teacher. A desire to help people be real and heard has been the driving force leading him to multiple settings and roles as a psychiatrist over the years and compelling <laughs> continually look for better, more effective ways to provide the highest quality care, to continue look, uh, to align people with their most authentic self, to deliver into an eagerly awaiting world. I love these words. And you are also the uh, amazing creator of Welcome to Humanity, the true voice course, healing the healer and the global madness. It's such a pleasure to have you. And what brings you to this space? Maybe we can learn a little bit about your background. <clears throat> um, excuse me. So, yeah. So what brings me to the space is there's a, you know, um, as you suggested in my bio, there's been an opportunity for me to really be my truest self ever since I arrived on earth about 65 years ago. Um, I learned right when I came here that communication was at the heart of all healing. I had, was born into a family that um, had two brothers that were 10 and 14 years older than me, as well as my parents. And I could see that the big people actually talked to each other and that this, things would happen when they talked. I firmly remember being in my playpen and watching them you know, speak to each other and really get the communication and connection was really what was what was enchanting about life. Now, I don't think I used those words as a child, but I can tell you that I really was always super eager to learn how to communicate. How do I learn to speak? How do I learn to talk? How do I learn to listen? How do I learn to create from conversation? And we fast forward a little bit. I know we're not going to be able to go day to day from the time I was born. But in elementary school, I was also deeply interested in learning about conversation, but it wasn't really there for me to learn. Kids were interested in other things. And I kept on thinking that conversation would be something I would learn in the next level. Like maybe I would learn it at junior high, or maybe I'd learn it at high school, or maybe, you know, even in high school, it wasn't really there, not in the school setting. You know, we were asked instead to regurgitate what the teacher said. And as long as we could do it really accurately, then they gave us credit for moving on to the next grade. And then in college, um, you know, that's when I really started exploring uh, all this whole idea of communication. And late in high school and college, 
but it wasn't in school. It was out of school. It was like when I was skipping class or when I was, um, you know, in the Arboretum or something at the University of Michigan where I attended. And, you know, I'd be on the, um, I'd be on the Diag, which is the central area. And I loved communicating with the people in Ann Arbor and the people and my friends. And, um, you know, I became a communication specialist, I think. I became someone that people just came to and spoke and told their whole story to. And from this, I realized that I was probably suited to do some kind of uh, mental health work, social work, or psychiatry or whatever. I dropped out of college and I joined, um, I went across the country to find myself, actually. I got on a Greyhound bus and went across the country. I dropped out again, actually. I dropped out twice. Um, and the second time, you know, I came back home and told my mom that there'd be no way I would ever go back to college. And she told me that I needed to get a job, you know, because that's the way moms are. They think like that. And so I got a job um, as a child care worker in a state mental health facility. And that's where I really seriously began to learn that communication and connection were um, healing in and of themselves. These kids, they were only six or seven years younger than me, and I would have conversations with them and we would both heal. And all I had to do was treat them like human beings, like treat them like there's just another soul there. And I loved doing that, but I hated the way psychiatry worked. Psychiatry was already in its starting stages of using medication and restraints as a way of managing people. And as a child care worker, we had to be part of that. I didn't want any part of that. And so I decided to go back into school to learn how to be a psychiatrist so that I could inject communication into my skills and actually be a psychiatrist that used conversation. Now, as you know, as most people know, psychiatry has become quite typecast over the years. And now if you ask, you know, over the next 30 years, Prozac was introduced and then all the medicines that came after Prozac in 1987, have really altered the face of what psychiatry and mental health is about. And if you ask people now, like, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Almost everyone has the same answer. And that is that a psychiatrist can, what, prescribe medicine. And I hated prescribing medicines. I actually hated prescribing psych uh, psychoactive pharmacological based, you know, uh, medicines. I thought that they were doing damage. I knew a lot about medicines. Um, you know, I had to, but each time I wrote a prescription for a for a, a psychotropic medicine, my heart sank, and I had soul sacrifice. And this happened over a hundred thousand times, Susan. I wrote over a hundred thousand prescriptions as a psychiatrist, and I had over forty thousand patients. So there's a lot of heartbreak there. There's a lot of soul sacrifice. And I began to realize that I wasn't an advocate for diagnosis and I wasn't an advocate for medications. So I began to back out of the system. I instead, I no longer, I never was a straight up conventional psychiatrist, but in 2006 and then later in 2016, I made abrupt changes where I started taking people off of medicine and actually taking them off their diagnosis and getting them better just by taking them off these toxic drugs. Now, in 2016, I designed Welcome to Humanity. And Welcome to Humanity is a self, now pretty self-explanatory business. And you know what that is, is that really getting that all of our human experiences are sacred, whether they're unpleasant or pleasant, whether miserable or miraculous, whether they're beautiful or hateful, they're all sacred. And I really began to understand that. Now, when speaking to what your listenership is interested in, and maybe a little bit to you, um, I certainly dabbled with a little bit with non-pharmacological drugs, you know, the drugs in my, uh, in Ann Arbor, where I used, um, you know, I used a, a lot of psychedelics in Ann Arbor and a lot of marijuana and, you know, really exploring that as a recreational user, but I could see its value. I deeply could see its value. And uh, as we, you know, as we expand further from 2016, I began to really look at how can these medicines be used valuably? Like, you know, is it possible to employ some of the, um, 
psychoactive plant medicines, the kind that God gave us to actually make a difference in the world, to actually learn about the expansive nature of what life is about. So in 2018 and 19, I began to look at that a little bit more seriously, including, you know, um, befriending some people who were doing cannabis ceremonies. And then there was some psilocybin ceremonies and ayahuasca ceremonies. And then uh, microdosing or dealing with, uh, with lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, and working with MDMA and starting to look at how these medicines might play a role in the future of, of psychiatry or the future of mental health. The truth is, I think where I'm at now, I have so much distrust for the basic psychiatric model that I even though some people might be really excited about these medicines becoming more mainstream, for instance, psilocybin actually falling into the hands of the mainstream medical community, I'm not as excited about that uh, because I feel like the mainstream community will likely botch that up entirely. Just as I also feel that they're kind of, you know, ketamine is a very interesting medication, extremely interesting. Uh, it's a much smoother ride than some of these other drugs, and it offers the opportunity to really visualize and experience uh, the divinity and the infinity and the eternity of all of life and, you know, the cyclical nature of life and death, which is very beautiful. It's really exceptional to learn that, you know, that we're not just going to die and go away. It's, it's learning when we learn that that really alters life drastically. So I am working now to do a little bit of more, a little bit more um, ketamine prescribing. Here in California, they're still not legal to prescribe um, any of the other psychedelics. Uh, I suppose cannabis, if you consider that a psychedelic, and some do. Um, yeah, they, they, uh, and to use effectively with proper integration. So these days, I don't prescribe any, any psychotropic medicines that came out of a laboratory ever, except for occasionally ketamine. And I have promised for the use of plant medicines and other psychedelics, but the use of those medicines should come. I, I, I am more interested in that being done by specialists and shaman people who are not in the direct conventional medical community, because I really know how that medical community goes and I don't have it that they can make the transition of all the beauty that's inside of the experiences of psychedelic plant medicine or psychedelic natural medicines that are out there and um, without botching it up and kind of, you know, creating indications and contraindications and side effects and all that nonsense. And um, so I am concerned about it actually making it into the the mainstream conventional psychiatric um, industry. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Um, isn't there is there any value in in the um, psychiatric or oh, psychotropic um, medications? Is there any value at all <laughs> for an intervention? Let's say I'm just being an advocate of like you know. Let's see what, what we can do here. Um, are they all bad or is it the way that it's been used or prescribed in the West? Right. It's a great question. And, and people usually don't aren't as as like blunt about the question. But I, I here's my answer to the question, especially for your listeners that are on medicines who they think is working. So sometimes people take, you know, antidepressants or anti-anxiety agents or, you know, Depakote or Seroquel or you know, they take something to, for sleep or they take occasional Xanax or, you know, they and Selexa or Lexapro or the generic drugs that represent those uh, parent drugs. And they think that it's really helping them. And for this conversation, I'm not telling those people that they need to come off their medicine. If people are happy with the medicine they're taking, then it's indicated. If people are happy with the medicine, if they feel like they have found some relief that makes their life better, then by all means, please continue to use those medicines. If any time in life that you find something that's actually working for you to make your life work, you should continue doing it, no matter what it is. Now, the truth is, I don't prescribe these medicines to newcomers ever, never again. 
I don't see them as being top shelf. I don't see them as being very helpful. I sometimes re- will um, support like, you know, um, re-prescribing or refilling medicines that have worked for clients. But um, I don't have it that the antidepressants are very helpful at all. I think the recent studies also show that they don't do anything. Um, and if they do anything, they actually cause depression. And the anti-anxiety agents are the same way. They no doubt that the anti-anxiety agents cause panic and anxiety. And there's also in my world, no doubt that the, that the anti-manic um, patients, you know, the anti, um, uh, like bi- the bipolar drugs frequently uh, contribute directly to the ongoing perpetuation of uh, bipolarity. Now, again, I don't mean to slap all the medicines down especially for those people who have found medicine that actually works. But I do say that um, in my world, it's not just the medicines that don't work. It's the diagnoses that don't work. In other words, maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Even if you're miserable, even if you're in pain, even if you're afraid, even if you're anxious, even if you're depressed, even if you're aimless, even if you have insomnia, even if you have a tough time in social settings, even if like all those things are part of what it is to be human. In this crazy world, feeling uncomfortable should be embraced. It's no sign of mental health to be, you know, to be um, um, sane in an insane world. And so that we really start looking at that. And I don't have it that the laboratory medicines that were created do and are designed to do anything more than perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to treat. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, So, which I'm hearing that being uncomfortable is now made to be a a business to, to, uh, you know, capitalize on. Right. Being uncomfortable is not synonymous with being sick. That's for sure. Yeah. So how do we change this paradigm? How do we help people come to this conclusion? Because, um, at the moment, like you said, it's perpetuated to think there's something wrong with them. So how do you come back to helping them understand? Well, you know, people, there's a group of people, a lot of people who are either considering going into mental health to be re- evaluated because they think they're miserable or sad or different than others or angry or fearful or muted or muffled or stifled, and they want to go get evaluated. Now, the truth is they don't really want to get evaluated, Susan. You know what they really want? They really want a diagnosis. If they got evaluated and the doctor said they were okay, they would be upset. This is the only subspecialty in all of medicine that if the doctor says you're okay, you get upset. If you go to a a cardiologist or orthopedist or a kidney specialist and they say you're okay you're like oh good thank you if you go to a psychiatrist and they say you're okay you just like you flip them off and go find a real psychiatrist next door to get a get the diagnosis you're looking for what is this insatiable need to be diagnosed i think the that's a beautiful question you have great questions susan it's beautiful work so the insatiable need to be diagnosed i think is about relinquishing responsibility for taking control of your life the truth is, if I'm a jerk to my wife, or I'm a jerk to in if I do something stupid, or if I do something I'm ashamed of, I would rather blame something else than actually take responsibility for it. Maybe I'll blame another person, or maybe I can blame my diagnosis. You might have already heard people say stuff like, hey, that wasn't me, that was my bipolar acting up. Or that wasn't me, that's my ADHD. There's my social phobia there there you go that's you know there's my depression there's my spectrum you know whatever you want to say and i think that people get excited about diagnosing themselves because it gives them the the option to lean on a reason for living life less than what they wish they could now the other thing is is that the diagnosers they have an incentive too, because when I sit on my high horse and I start diagnosing, the assumption is, is that I'm more normal than you. 
And that, of course I am. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm more normal than you. I'm the one who has the book. I'm the one who delivers the goods. I'm the one who knows. I'm the one who's rooted in reality. You know, the truth is, is that diagnosers also have sort of an ego-driven need to diagnose people in a way that leaves them feeling confirmed that everything's okay with them. So it's a very powerful position to point at someone and say, you're out of bounds. Yeah. And it's feeding into this um, very deeply ingrained codependency, perpetuation of the codependency. Exactly. It really does. It feeds directly into that. Uh, the, the idea that, um, you know, that we, we, we look for cheap thrills. As diagnosers and diagnosed, we look for cheap answers. We look for short answers to a world that is really pretty complex. And if it's not complex, you could make a case that it's actually pretty simple you know, that living is actually pretty simple. Just simply accept what's going on. Be forgiving, be compassionate, be accepting, you know, um, and, um, you know, be grateful. We, We could make a case that that's all life really is. But in fact, we like to look for reasons for why we feel bad or why we feel worse or we look for ways to elevate ourselves over the rest of people. Like I am this and I'm special um, and you're not this and therefore you're not special. Yeah. I see this happening more (laughs) as of late. And also the new trend, I think is the trauma diagnosis, the the word of use of the trauma, because everybody gets um, out of the jail card. If you have that, that. Yeah. It's true. The, the whole the whole post traumatic stress disorder uh, diagnosis, and now the multiple variants, the multiple variants of PTSD that exist, um, is a you do get a get out of jail card. You know, like I was there when my mom died, or I was there when my you know I watched a car accident, or um, you know we we all have trauma, and many of us have it on a daily basis. Um, and it's part of human, unfortunately, to part of humanity to experience trauma. And this idea of, you know, I didn't get over it. And that's why I X or that's why I don't Y um, is uh, I'm not going to again, I don't want to disregard um, the clients or patients in your audience who um, really find that this helps their life to live with that diagnosis. On the other hand, it can be relooked. And the truth is trauma is not recurring. Typically trauma is not recurring. Now, certainly there are certain situations like that we know about, like in the trafficking world or in the battered, you know, in the, in the um, domestic violence world where trauma does recur. And I'm not speaking directly to that right now. I'm saying that the trauma that you experienced last week or last year or when you were a child is not here anymore. And there's an opportunity to actually accept, forgive, and collect yourself uh, even on the backside of those traumas and not have it be a dictator for how you live the next moments in your life. Yeah, that's so, that's beautiful. So what is the missing link or for, for the capacity to uh, regulate and not be stuck in trauma um how do we how do we bring this to to you know larger um communities attention yeah i i think unfortunately and this is i really do believe that this might be a factor is that the medicine sometimes cement the notion of recurrent trauma so when you it almost like is a freezes you inside the trauma if you if you have a trauma and let's say a car accident or something, and you come and they give you um, a medicine to deal with the traumatic um, uh, after effects. Sometimes those medicines actually perpetuate the symptoms by freezing you in that trauma. So the one thing to do is to keep yourself clean as best as you can. This is a very dirty world. The things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we smell, the things that we taste, 
These are very toxic times. So you want to do your best to keep yourself clean. That's very important. And then when you're really looking at like how to get this trauma out of your system or how to reflect on it, there's something like embracing the trauma and getting not, and that's not condoning it. It's not the same as saying it was okay, but really getting it as an experience in life. One of those many smorgasbord level experiences of misery or of pain or suffering that become part of life. And when you incorporate those, you can see by altering the narrative, you know, simply transforming the narrative that trauma itself doesn't have to reoccur. And you get to define, you, the, the, the traumatized, um, can define how trauma gets metabolized through your system. You get to say, you know, I have had some significant trauma myself. In fact, you know, I had recent open heart surgery, for instance, just 10 weeks ago. And, you know, I, I could make a really big deal that that's um, still affecting me. And it is, I'm healing. I feel, you know, my, you know, they split my sternum in half and went right in there. And, um, you know, you could call that a, an, an important trauma for sure. But the, the idea is, is that it doesn't have to be relived and it doesn't have to be in the way of me making responsible decisions in the future. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. So thank you for highlighting the distinction of uh, embracing the trauma. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the distinction that um, a lot of the people coming back to the psychedelic medicines um, and using them for healing trauma and, you know, helping people with mental health challenges and all of that. I think one of the things that um, really the first pushback is always about um, there is this natural way the medicine wants to help the person heal uh, and also feel and lean into something that is held in the body, which then um, oftentimes a person freaks out thinking and associating it with a past negative experience and the first reaction is, I'm not going there. Right. The side effect, I don't understand how this is going to help me. It's taking me right back into my discomfort. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's, there's now we have this situation, um, psychedelic medicines are being mainstreamed. What do we do with this situation? I think, again, you know, it, it, we, we like to think that there's something to do. I think that the, the specialists with the plant medicines, with the psychedelic medicines, I think you're referring to those natural psychedelic medicines that, because ketamine is laboratory produced, of course, and um, some of these others will be laboratory produced. You know, they'll, they'll find a way to put psilocybin in a capsule for sure. And they'll find a way to put MDMA into a tablet for sure. And, you know, even ayahuasca will probably find its way into, you know, what, however they do it into the mainstream delivery system. There's something like, you know, trusting the elders and trusting the people from um, the, um, indigenous population, for instance, the Peruvians or the shamans to help us walk through these times, whether that's um, with frog medicine or with plant medicine or whatever, uh, like really getting that the essence of this medicine comes from a space that does not have um, a trademark associated with it. Yeah, and I hear a lot of conversations around that. You know, there's the medical model, there's the shamanic or the, you know, traditional indigenous model. Um, so kind of like we split all over, you know, there's so right. many people advocating for some model of use. Um, what are your thoughts on the most effective use, let's say? I hear you saying about the trusting the elders, but what does that mean to a Western person living isolated life, not having that kind of connection or even understanding? Well, I think there's probably some value um, in um, considering psychedelics. There's not that many people anymore who don't have access to elders. 
like what well, you and I don't have a natural access to each other, but here we are on the internet having a very intimate conversation. We've never met before, but we're having a full scale intimate conversation. And this becomes available. You can have an online shamanic experience, for instance, with any of these medications. And so it isn't true that you're not connected to the elders or to the shamanic population or to the indigenous populations. You, the, the internet and uh, our capacity to communicate via this platform allows for connections with people that otherwise may have appeared to be too far away or um, separate or unavailable. But I think we now have it that that is available and you can have it, you can have that be, have that work for you. Also, you know, in the world of like, um, depending on which, which medicine you're speaking to, um, which ceremonies or which things you're interested in or what you want to try or dabble with, you know, um, uh, the idea is, is that sometimes the shaman or the elders, they travel around the country and they can get pretty close, you know, with some of the churches, et cetera, you can get pretty close to your neighborhood so you don't have to take a very long drive and you can you can actually get involved with these ceremonies that otherwise um, you might think are um, restricted to South America. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, you said earlier about the how the medical model or the people in the medical side of the world might make a really big mess, just kind of re, um, re, paraphrasing in my own way, uh, make a mess of like how to use this. So uh, uh, at least have the applications of these psychedelic medicines, because they will create all these contraindications and obstacles and, um, and then leave out some people, categorize who should be taking, who should not be taking, which is already happening. For example, there are mm, harm reduction um, concepts like certain people shouldn't even touch these medicines, such as bipolar, uh, schizophrenic tendencies. What are your thoughts on that? That's just, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think that it um, annihilates the access to some medicines that, See, I don't have it that people are their diagnosis, their mental. I don't I diagnose I don't diagnose people anymore. You know, if you were my client, I would diagnose you simply as Susan Gunner. That's it. That would be it. That's your diagnosis. And that's that's everyone's diagnosis is who they are. So, you know, in the schizophrenic populations, for instance, I have it that once you receive the diagnosis, then you start living the life of someone who you think is a schizophrenic. And not only do you start living that life psychologically, but if given medicines that actually create psychosis, um, you will, in fact, pick up symptoms that are consistent with your diagnosis. And so it really is meant off frequently. I'm not sure it's, it's entirely nefarious, but it might be um, this idea of really uh, exploring and exploiting that the medicines and the diagnosis are there to perpetuate the symptoms that are marketed to treat. So when you bring these medicines into, when you bring the powerful medicines from the earth or from the um, forest um, into mainstream med medical, into mainstream conventional medical industry, they have no choice but to put all sorts of like, barriers and measures and contraindications and, you know, things. And it's, it's not done for the purpose of the value of the medicine. It's done for the purpose of like um, categorizing and probably in some form monetizing and keeping the liability down. You know, it, that's more or less what the incentives seem to be. I understand. Is it because it will be costly, time-consuming, and we'll have to repurpose, restructure to able to include, make it inclusive? Well, I think that's one reason. And I think the other reason is that, you know, medicine, modern medicine is not interested in the divine. Uh, you know, they're not interested in the eternal. They're not interested in the infinite. They're not interested in the higher um, powers of the world. Um, and in fact, if you come into an emergency room and you start talking like that, 
the next thing that'll happen is you'll have a psychiatrist by your side evaluating you. And they'll think that you're already psychiatrically ill. So these medicines often give us access to, to a place where modern medicine does not endorse or support what your findings are in when you go down those journeys. If yeah. you start speaking about eternity and divinity, infinity, you know, life cycle um, issues or incarnations or anything like that in a, uh, or that God has your back or that, you know, you're going to be taken care of by the nature and the forces, you will be called psychotic pretty quickly and you will be thrown into a psychiatric hospital. So there's an interface there that is very agitated and it's like modern medicine is not built to absorb what it is that these plant medicines are bringing forth. Wow. How did we get here? How did we get here? What's the That's, It's a really good question. Again, a super good question, very broad and uh, important question. And um, I think we, you know, over the evolutionary times, we have um, fallen victim to what it is to be normal. It, you know, some of the older experiences, this experiences in the past that seem to uh, really underline this notion, for instance, are the witch trials. You know, you start looking at what is normal, that I am normal and you're not becomes a really important piece of this. So in the world of science as a near religion, this idea of science being something that is now seen as being the core of what reality is by many people, we're left with um, disregarding so much of what life has to offer inside the scientific model. And I, I just think, you know, I don't know, I just think there's a tendency for humans to want to elevate themselves over, the, over others and there's a lot of definitions that are embedded in our way of thinking of what it means to be human as a society that are only agreement realities and frankly don't have any strong stakes in the ground um, when looking back at like the Zen warriors of the past or the or the um, indigenous populations of the past who, you know, including and in not not limit, including like the American Indian and uh, really all these people who had a totally different view of what it meant to be alive. We just disregarded them and created a, re a view of our own that has to live on its own. And therefore we have to acquire and then agree to some of the delusions that are embedded in that way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. Thank you for that. Um, are you aware of this concept of Moloch? What is it? Moloch or Moloch? Uh, not, not, you're going to have to explain it to me, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I came across not long ago. It's a, it's actually a wonderful young lady. Um, she started defining it for a younger generation or at least everyone on social media and uh, just a kind of warning everyone about the 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 dangers of of this level of um perpetuation so it's moloch was defined by her as uh it's like the shadow part of humanity uh creating this this thing that then eventually becomes conscious and aware of itself and there's this momentum and in this momentum everybody's kind of on board jumping on the ship and what it means for us is that we slowly start self-sacrificing, um, letting go of our values, beliefs, principles uh, to be part of this thing. Otherwise, we are out of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm. I thought it was fascinating. It's really great. Yeah, you know, um, uh, in... Some of my trainings, they use this word called um, tranquilized obviousness. Yeah. And that's sort of that's sort of at the root of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so coming back to psychedelic medicines, um, what would be the best way to talk about this? Um, you're someone that I really respect and I can hear um, your passion and how you have integrated it and, and what you are, you know, 
where you stand in that and how can we speak of these in the best way possible? What would be the best practices? And um, how can we bring it more in the best way for our listeners, at least uh, for our listeners? Um, well, to- I think there's, you know, I don't like to uh, ask listeners or you to consider doing anything illegal. That's for sure. You don't, you know, don't do stuff illegal. On the other hand, these medicines are illegal in many situations and should be tried. You know, if you're if you're eager to wonder what what some of these medicines can do, or you know somebody who's partaked and uh, received some significant benefit from their journey, then you should consider doing the same. And it's not a, more than likely you won't be arrested um, at this point in time. Um, so I like using it before it gets, I like the idea of using it long before it gets, don't wait for it to come into the medical complex. I guess that's something like that. Um, it'll be altered and annihilated in so many ways as it comes into the complex that I don't suspect that you'll get the same positive results as you will with a trained um, shaman or a, a, a trained um uh, leader of some sort who can walk you through these journeys and integrate you on the backside. Um, so keep an open mind. They are available and there's, you know, there's a preponderance. It's a, it's a lot of pe- a lot of people who are um, offering these opportunities, these um, psychedelic opportunities, and they do open up the way you look at life and provide some release to some release and relief to the main fear in life, which I believe the main fear in life is the fear of death. And um, it really alters the way we think of death uh, fundamentally. And when the fear of death gets dissolved or altered fundamentally, the paradigm, you know, terror that we have of death, um, it can change the way we live very drastically. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And so what are your thoughts on on the um, conversations around people creating spaces that are not so safe? Because I am observing the, the mainstream online communities and there is almost every other day someone is being harmed by a facilitator who just took a few sessions of the medicine and then decided to be a provider and all kinds of conversations are happening. What are your thoughts? Right, right. Um, right. It's a, um, these are difficult times, you know, you, you should vet out who you work with and you should vet out who you sleep with. You should vet out who you eat with. You should vet out who you, you know, meet with. And, um, we can't be certain that who we're meeting is safe and um, or that we're going to be taken care of. And there are charlatans for sure in this field and any, in any bursting open field, charlatans show up at the roots of it and pretend to be experts. So it's, I don't have much to say on, on like how to generally protect yourself other than do your, do your due diligence and do your research on the people that you're, meeting intimately with for any reason yeah thank you for highlighting that in your experience in your opinion uh working with different types of medicines um such as um psilocybin ayahuasca and uh, lsd so i would love to hear your expert opinion on what do you think of lsd mdma ketamine let's put them not trying to categorize them but you know, in terms of like, there is also a division of like, these are earth medicines and fusions, and these are lab creations. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that ketamine, especially, uh, I like uh, the rapid dissolving tablet formulation for um, ketamine. I think that it's a it's super clean ride into the divine. Super clean. Amazing. Ama- amazing ride. Amazing on the way up and amazing on the way out. Short acting leaves you effective. You can drive home, you know, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful ride and it gives access to uh, a really broad base of um, experience. With LSD, I think, you know, the, 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 the electric Kool-Aid acid test folks are, you know, going all the way back to Timothy Leary and all that. 
all the people in the 60s who um, glamorized LSD. It's an extraordinary experience for sure and broadens um, mentality and broadens intellect, broadens creativity and uh, can be, it's not for everybody. I don't think it's for everybody. And then when you start talking about microdosing LSD, that's, an, that's also a very fascinating concept, this idea of getting all those benefits without losing your sense of reality. Um, you know, everyone from Silicon Valley and multiple places have tried that. And there's some deep effectiveness. Same thing with MDMA. I think that, you know, when you look at the laboratory aspects of MDMA, which is, you know, naturally comes from the earth, but has been created in the laboratory, is um, the value in good hands of, of high potency, um, high quality MDMA and learning a little bit about love and compassion with other folks is extraordinary. You know, like, what does it really mean to be in love with yourself and with humanity and another person? There's a real access to that that MDMA provides. And what about the entheogens, so to speak? The what? Entheogens, you know, directly from Earth, like psilocybin, ayahuasca. Right. Again, I think I would lean on the shaman, lean on the experts, lean on the, those who grew up with the medicine, whether it's, you know, Again, what frog medicine, or if it's ayahuasca or psilocybin, the mushrooms, and really start looking at the people who knew then, who still know now, and that that experience can be very, very rich and very, um, you know, sort of uh, um, like mystical and beautiful, and you can learn a lot inside of those those experiences. So I support those. That is so wonderful. Thank you so much. Now I'd like to move into your work and very interested in hearing more about some of your courses. So if you could maybe give us an overview of uh, what are they? The True Voice course, for example. Right. The True Voice course is a course that's designed to help people really move the things out of their way that are in their way from being, you know, that leave them muffled or stifled or muted or muzzled or silenced. And most of us have that. Most of us aren't speaking our truth. Most of us are finding ourselves just kind of making it through the day, saying what we don't even believe. Like, isn't that bizarre that we can actually say something that even we don't believe? Like, it's amazing. Amazing that life has come to that, that we actually can say something that even we don't believe. We pretend to be different people than in order to protect the person that we are. And that's just bizarre. And so the True Voice course is, uses podcasting as a template that really teaches people in a very pleasant and very comprehensive way to get access to their truest self and then deliver it effectively into the world um, using creative means such as podcasting or others. It doesn't force you to be a podcaster, but I love to use podcasting because I think it's the cleanest way in the society right now to get our points across like we're doing today. The... Um, the Healing the Healer course is a course meant for disenchanted healers like myself. I'm my ideal client for that one. I'm my, um, you know, avatar. I'm my, um, um, my dot. And the reason for that is there are so many people who went into the healing arts believing that they had a blessing and a gift. And now they're left actually in the job doing something totally different than what they thought they would do and muzzled, muffled, stifled, et cetera. And this group of people really needs to clean up their act and heal themselves. And the whole course is built on helping those people get access to their core self and then either return back into the field that they um, were initially in or find another alternative field that's more consistent with their core values. These courses are super fun. And along with my books, um, Find Your True Voice um, and uh, the Creative Eight uh, are aligned with each other. So Find Your True Voice, you can find that at findyourtruevoicebook.com, and I'll send you a hard copy of that. Um, we also have um, uh, the Creative Eight, um, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression, which helps people see that there might not be a diagnosis at the bottom of it. In fact, it just might be a lack of creativity that's, that can help with their uh, mental health stability and balance. That is so wonderful. And the, what about the global madness? 
Yeah, global madness is something that um, it's kind of on hold right now. But the idea is, is that if I wanted to be sort of the Anthony Bourdain of um, mental illness and go around the world, seeing that, you know, psychiatry, um, that, you know, mental illness is seen as different things, no matter where you go. So in different cultural centers, um, mental illness is, you know, like if you have a broken arm, you have a broken arm in Singapore and in Tibet and in London and in Little Rock. But if you have a psychiatric problem, it's not the same. No matter what you are, you depending on where you are, it changes. So mental illness has a changing definition worldwide. And that's the global madness, the idea that with, if it has a changing definition, then it must be simply a conversation subject to transformation. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this great work. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, as we as we slowly coming to, towards the end of our conversation, um, I'd like to leave the space for you to share what it intuitively comes through you, and what would you like to share as a message today with our listeners? If there's anything. Um, the idea is that maybe there's nothing wrong with you. That's really the most important thing. That maybe feeling miserable or feeling different is part of being normal. And then the second idea is that the greatest threat in the world is that you're not speaking your true voice into the world. It's not COVID. It's not, um, it's not anything but your true voice. It's really the greatest threat in the world. Thank you so much for that. And where can our listeners find you? The audience can find me best at um, drfred360.com. Or you can find me at, um, you know, by uh, going into my uh, website and getting a copy of Creative 8, where we will, that's a welcome to humanity.net forward slash Creative 8. And you can get an audio copy of that book. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fred Moss. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and your work and hoping to have you return and share more wisdom and follow your journey and your projects for future. Uh, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor and a great conversation. Thank you for running it. Beautiful stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us. Hope you guys enjoyed this session. Please do get in touch with myself or Dr. Fred. We'll have all the links in the show notes. Um, you can comment, share experiences. Don't be shy. And I will see you on the next one. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.